You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Uh, such an interesting interview. Chatting or cheating? So many times with my clients. What? I'm just... Can I not just write heard this text it's not it doesn't let me see the text no you don't need to see the text just trust me and off we go so we start fighting about text messages we start fighting about your friends we start fighting about time when in reality the issue is trust we don't trust we don't trust what you're doing we don't trust what we see happening uh this weekend i i had the chance to speak at a women's con or a parenting conference for uh, Governor Jeanette, uh, Governor Gary Herbert's wife, Jeanette Herbert, uh, who is the governor of the state of Utah, um, they they put on a parenting conference, and I'm telling you, in these parents, as parents, if if we're having an emotional affair with someone, you've got to know one of the biggest, uh, sadly, the biggest groups or group of people that will be harmed by your affair will be your family, your children. Because they're going to know. My rule is that, you know, the kids will eventually be 30. And when kids are 30, they can figure out what happened. They'll know what you did. They'll know which of the parents are healthy. They'll know which are struggling. So... Get real about your affair. Many times in my office, I will ha- I will basically know, just like the partner, that somebody is cheating. And many times they will just lie straight to my face, even in private. I'll say, look, something's going on. Because if you're falling out of love, you have to be putting that love somewhere else. We don't fall out of love with people that we serve and we care for. We don't fall out of love for people that we talk to and communicate with and learn more about. So in your marriage, if you're falling out of love, it's because you're giving your attention to someone else, right? It's not just that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. It's that you've been fertilizing it over there. You've been giving it more water. You've been taking care of it. The grass is greener where you put your effort. We don't just fall out of love. So if you have fallen into an emotional relationship with someone else, it's because you are putting your time, your mind share, your excitement there. And then you need a story. So you justify it by, well, my wife was never blankety blank or my husband never. In reality, it won't matter. Your lack of character is going to catch up with you. So be careful. Most affairs, if you think about it, start emotionally. So get used – and I call it an emotional affair. She had different names for it. It's an emotional affair. And it's chemically charged and it's chemically driven and it makes you think that everything is wonderful and there's rainbows and unicorns and life is great. But the reality is that's going to fade. And when that fades, you're left with this other person. 
If you don't want to be with your spouse, then be done, I guess. Be done. But don't lead a dual life. You can always try to improve the condition by getting more real or you can improve the condition by moving on. And so with this whole Ashley Madison debacle where now they're in the back end and finding out all the names of these uh, these people that were on Ashley Madison's website trying to have affairs, there's more and more of this being exposed. So be careful. Don't believe you're not somebody that can fall into an emotional affair because you can. When people are laughing at everything you say, when people think you're the smartest person in the room, when you know people are giving you the attention that you don't get at home because at home you're just dad or you're just mom, um, you're just husband, wife, you got to be watching out for that. And don't ever think you're above it because you're not. You're not. A lot of people end up falling into these emotional affairs, and the emotional affair is the gateway to a full-on affair. And a full-on affair is the gateway to some serious pain for you, your children, your family. You divide everything. You divide half of everything. Give it all up. And then supposedly, I guess you'll have a better life. But the reality is you're still just you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, if you could just go to a therapist or if you didn't need to go to the therapist and you could just do it yourself, we're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. <laughs> Ben's like, yes. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just, they're, they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend that was a, just a really good listener? Are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function, um, you know, for your partner to, to help get their emotions out? Oh, it's, it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice there's there's these signs, okay? I call them, you don't need to just always be, I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them. Um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So right after, uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and I was certified in, you know, life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how, to, how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, uh, respirations, if you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs. And then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs, right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. 
And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping, instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion. I look for misunderstanding, and I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person, right? So if, if, my, if my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever and I can't find it, and I've got to go use it right now. There's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If I am if if I have a, a person that's that's quiet and and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? <laughs> I mean, last year's example of of this same, you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not, you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. Emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about, a little coach's corner for you right there. Emotional management, it's hard stuff, let alone doing it with each other. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, it's and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I, I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they're like, man, what's wrong with me? Why? Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we, there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, Okay, and um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. 
I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your 10 friends, if you had 10 friends, Ben, nine out of 10 of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too. And I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's, even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, – and you can see this in our political world. Even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it, it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system – don't all they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion um i guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are or you could just shut your flapper and go make a donation to preserving animals Right. But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. (laughs) Is that are you trying to show you're trying to get me mad? So I would. No, I'm trying to be logical. Trust your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do was just take the – I just wanted to take his his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his – Stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical. But he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right And that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons. This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, it doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what does what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, 
your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Anyway, uh, closest to you, by the way. We'll take a break. Stick with us. We can't do the show without you. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Terrorism, or the use of violence and intimidation for political aims, is one of the top-ranking issues millennials put on the agenda for the next president of the United States. Most people believe that terrorism needs to be another country going against our own country. However, terrorism can, in fact, be homegrown right here in America. We have the security structures to stop organized terror attacks, but are we prepared to stop lone wolf terrorist attacks? Here to speak to us today is Ph.D. Robert Barsky, a professor of English and French literature and a professor of law at Vanderbilt University. And we appreciate uh, you, Dr. Barsky, being with us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, you, you've you done some interesting research um, in Canada and other places as well about um, about refugees and the refugees coming into these countries and their, uh, you know, their ability to, I guess, become assimilated and feel like they actually belong. Um, talk about that. Talk about what you've learned uh, working with this these refugee communities. It's a fascinating realm when you can put together the realms of literature and, in this case, migration and, and law. Uh, we were approached when I was doing research in Quebec uh, by the government who has indicated that despite all of their efforts to understand the actual experiences of migrants living in the in the province and in the country, that they felt as though they had no real tangible sense of what their day-to-day existence was like. Uh, it turns out that in, in Canada, there are subventions offered to uh, migrants uh, to new new arrivals and so forth to publish books in many cases literature so i thought it interesting to turn to the works that had been written by immigrants to the province to see what it is that they were talking about and see if we might have um, more interesting insight into the kind of day-to-day life for them hmm. and of course literature made good sense because as well, we, as we hear every day, uh, so many descriptions of the people who live in our country are politically motivated, ideologically tinged, and so forth. We don't have a, a strong sense of, of the, the lives of, of the, the people who are amongst us. So in, in looking at the literature, uh, not surprisingly, a lot of the stories told are stories about border crossing. What did it mean to leave the home country? How heart-wrenching and, and difficult was that? And what happened when the, the, the narrator or the characters arrived in this new country? What, did it, what was day-to-day existence like? And I focused on those moments when exchanges occurred. So let's say the, 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 the narrator or the, or the character receives the key to his new apartment. Mm. And it's able to to go in, or the, the the character meets somebody from the host country, and they develop an amorous relationship. Those moments when things are either given or received 
to see what the effect was upon the person in terms of his or her ability to then cope with the new society. So, and this, this makes good sense because no matter how perceptions are drawn about what it's like to move to the United States or move to Canada or move to Europe, the fact is that it's always traumatizing. It's always difficult. There are new languages. There are new uh, forms to fill out. There's new, uh, a new culture to try to understand. And even in the best of circumstances, it poses really significant problems. Of course, a lot of them are, can be alleviated if there is a little bit more, uh, if there's more funds. But generally speaking, it's just, it's, it's hard. You don't have friends, you don't have family. So I looked into this and began to understand that there were certain things that we can do that tangibly make the life of those people who are entering into our country uh, easier, to make the process of assimilating uh, smoother. And I think that this is a very promising area to be looking at right now because the reality is we have 12 to 15 uh, undocumented migrants living in the United States. We have an international obligation to accept uh, asylum seekers and refugees. There is this ongoing crisis uh, in Syria that is not going away anytime soon. And we can't just close our... First of all, the borders... They cannot be closed. They can't be closed right. according to international law or obligations. And the fact is that they aren't. Uh, there are already millions and millions of people in our country. So rather than uh, waving our sabers and talking about fences and walls and so forth, we need to build the kinds of, of bridges that allow for the population who is already here on the ground to feel that they have a stake in civil society. And it's, that's, that's where I think is the center. Oh, it's, it's a, I think it's a fascinating uh, way to get to this. I mean, going through their literature, hearing their stories, I guess sensing their lack of belonging at times and, and just feeling not quite integrated. Um, but, but then, we, you know, we hear about it in the United States with some of the rhetoric from the political candidates, but we also were hearing it also in France where there's a lot of uh, hullabaloo about the burkinis and the you know the dress standards, what's allowable, what's not allowable at the beaches. We start to see laws being changed um, to I guess to discriminate against certain groups of people. In yeah. the end, though, this this is this becomes ostracizing, right? This this puts them on the outside, which could create the conditions for the lone wolf. The that's exactly that correct. person that has to reach back to their old, maybe, you know, to other groups that would would accept them in. That's exactly right. And in fact, the phenomenon would relate to the lone wolf, but it also relates more generally. And I think for reasons that are, that are obvious, if uh, a migrant is made to feel unwelcome, and if he or she feels that to be examined in public by an official is likely to lead to a confrontational situation, and he or she is not likely to want to participate in civil society. So mm. we can take an extreme example. Let's say an undocumented person is living in an apartment building and there are screens next door. The, temp- the obvious move would be to pick up the telephone and call and say, I'm so-and-so and I live here and there are, there's somebody who's being attacked next door and can you send the police? The reality is that when the... Uh, people, the uh, individuals like that are demonized if they're considered 
you know, as they've been described in the political culture as rapists or murderers mm-hmm. or drug dealers or whatever else, then they will feel, and I hate to say this, but rightly so, they, they will feel that when uh, in the face of an, of an officer, rather than being able to contribute, they might be asked for papers, they might be checked, they might be accused. So they might turn over in their bed, put the pillow over their ears and try and go back to sleep Mm. rather than than helping. We are creating situations of antagonism and and nobody benefits from this. Certainly law enforcement uh, dislikes this approach. And in fact, I I did a book recently on undocumented immigrants and uh, was looking into some of the policies of police officers in the country. And there are a number of police chiefs who specifically said, you are not immigration officers, you are policemen, you're there to fight crime, you should not be checking people's status, you should be, um, you know, enforcing the laws that you that you can and should enforce. Mm. And that's all, there's a there's a logic to that. So that this, the, the people in the in the, the society that we're talking about, feel a sense of, of buy-in. Now, what happens so that, that's a, a general statement, and I think it, it applies, and it's just logic, it's just right. pure logic no, right. that, uh, that dictates that. Now, in the lone wolf example, let's, let's say you have, so, so I think it's most likely that people will just try and, and, and stay away from authority. But if, for example, the, the, the person has read about being demonized, has heard from even political candidates for office uh, as high as the president, mm that they are the problem, that they're some kind of a cancer that needs to be weeded out. Then, and if they feel that they have made a, a horrible and difficult trek, if they have made a lot of sacrifices, they've left the country, in many cases against their own will, and then they feel that somehow the society that is supposed to welcome them by you know, all the international agreements is instead demonizing them and considering them a risk, then there is, of course, a small number of people who have violent tendencies and, and horrible thoughts, and my sense is that that can activate it. Mm. So I, I believe that we need to talk about prevention and not just reaction. Reaction is fences. Reaction is you know, uh, arresting people and, and criminalizing them and deporting them. Right. Reaction is searching them and doing stops and searches and so forth. Reactions are, are targeting people of a particular uh, skin color or religion and pulling them over and, 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 mm. and questioning them. That's, that's a very vicious way to deal with people who are on the territory. And, and I don't think that viciousness works. No, and, and it, seem, yeah, it seems to – what it does is it would drive them underground. And even exactly. if they're underground and friendly and kind, they're still seen as antisocial and they're still seemingly a threat. But then what I'm seeing too, Robert, is there's a lot of – second generation. So this isn't a one generation problem. If the first generation has to go underground to kind of hide and get through this, the second generation becomes probably even more ostracized and more less integrated into society, which means less likely to maybe have some of the basic benefits like a driver's license and other issues and employment opportunities and better educational opportunities. It's, it's such an important point, the, the generational question. It, it is often the case that the first generation cannot fully integrate, if only because of the language barrier. Yeah. 
So um, it, it, it is very difficult for you know any any class of migrant to integrate in the first generation. And a lot of effort has to be placed, as you're suggesting, upon the second generation, partly because the second generation can feel as though it needs to pay the debts of the first generation. That is, if uh, somebody's father or mother was maltreated, uh, not integrated, you know, you have these kind of horrific stories of being uh, demonized and so forth. Then, the, as as the the person grows up, he or she may you know, talk to talk to the wrong people, get hardened, and say, mm. you know, this country's always been been bad to my family, and now here they are. They don't want to offer me health care, even though I'm here. They don't. They, I'm, I'm not allowed to uh, participate in certain types of uh, activities to which all members of society are normally um, uh, welcomed and so forth. So this can lead, you know, and again, there's there's no way to predict who the, who that might affect. Right. You know, we see this from all of the shootings and all of the, the murders and killings. We, 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 this, there's no reliable way to say this person is about to crack. But there, I think that there is a reliable way to say, what, how can we make this place a, a kinder, gentler, more open kind of society that people then feel close to? If, if, you know, I, and again, here's just common sense. If in your workplace you're treated well, if you are respected, if you feel as though you're the space that you're given is, is good and your uniform is comfortable and whatever else, you feel as though the, the, the company has your back. Yeah. And, and that's really, what about when the country has your back? You know, when you feel, oh, this is my public square, this is my bus, this yeah, is my that, metro. And now you that's belong. Me. Yeah, now you are in. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Robert F. Barsky. Um, uh, the author of many books, one book is Hatched, which is... Um, a wonderful book that shares three stories, fictional uh, stories about friends that illegally uh, stimulate the American economy. He also has written a book about undocumented immigrants in the era of arbitrary law. Folks, it matters. It matters how we go about uh, improving the lives of those that are migrating to the United States. It may, uh, it may save lives. Stick with us. We'll be right back, continuing the discussion. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Robert F. Barsky, Ph.D. He is a uh, a professor of English and French literature and a professor of law at Vanderbilt University. And today he's talking with us about an article we found in theconversation.com that he wrote called uh, Want to Prevent Lone Wolf Terrorism? Promote a Sense of Belonging. And Dr. Barsky, thank you so much. This is... uh, it just seems like good old-fashioned common sense. You treat people Absolutely. better. You love people. You let them help them belong and have a sense of belonging, and everyone's safer. Totally. And you, I think it, your your point uh, draws attention to the idea of empathy. One of the difficulties and joys of traveling is you go to a place and you land there and you think, how am I going to get to the center of the city how am I going to find my hotel? What if I don't speak the language? Mm. What, what are the kinds of services that are available to me? And, you know, uh, tourists tend to demand a lot of the country. And, you know, if you happen to fall off your bicycle or your scooter, 
you, you, it's almost like you expect somebody's going to come and pick you up and bring you to hospital and, right. and patch you up and so forth. And we see this even amongst those people who are against, uh, you know, high taxes and, and against socialized medical care and so forth. Somehow when they go somewhere else and they realize what it is to be a, a victim of circumstance, I've seen so many examples of people just kind of expecting that the host country will take care of them. Well, empathy means put yourself into the shoes of somebody who has made a, a genuine claim for, let's say, refugee status, somebody who has, whose village or city has been destroyed, whose family has been uh, you know, pushed out or killed. You know, they, they arrive here. What, what is the point of demonizing them and of denying mm. them basic uh, services? The, it, in fact, we should be investing in those people who have come to our territory and investing in their happiness, investing in their safety, investing in their sense of belonging and buy-in. And it, studies have shown that we did at the National Institute for Scientific Research that people who have come to uh, the country, in that case Canada, uh, with nothing but have been helped and so forth, over a 10-year period, they became better integrated into the society by all measures, including they had hired more people, they had you know, mm. worked more, they had, they had educated their children to higher levels and so forth, than those people who came in with a lot of money. So uh, the, there's also this kind of bias that says, well, we, we don't want those, we don't want the, the, the outcasts, we don't want those people who are going to jump the queues, we don't want, well, it's nonsense. Um, these, if, if people are you know, fleeing for reasons that are demonstrably difficult, then yeah. and, we, and they're offered a good life, their investment in the country becomes gigantic. But I, I must say also that it's not just those people. Uh, we all, many people love to travel. Um, and we, we always talk about those people who are coming in. Well, what about those, uh, those people who are going out? What about the value that would be added to our own lives if we too could travel freely, integrate mm. uh, uh, easily, to Mexico or to you know any country uh, that we could go go to by land from 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 the United States or in fact anywhere why does it have to be the case that the 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 model that we immediately jump to is is border control and fences and so forth these people are going to move around anyway whether it be for adventure or for flight and rather than making the process even scarier and more difficult than it is to, to build in the, the certainty that if you do arrive on a, on a, on a territory that you will be treated like, like, a, like a human being. We would want that for our children. If our children travel to a, a foreign country, why shouldn't we offer that? And for, our citizen, for people who we hope will eventually become citizens, this kind of, I, could, I guess you could call it an investment. It's an investment in the future, and it's an investment in our own safety. And it's just being a member of the human race, right? I mean, this is like basic humanity. Absolutely. And then we politicize it, don't we? Then we, yeah, it's almost, it seems like there's a lot of fear, but, uh, but it seems like the fear could be allayed by like what you're saying, by empathy, by understanding. I've lived in a foreign country for two years and it changed me. I can't, I can't think of, uh, I, I think of people so differently because I've seen, stuff you would never see in the United States. Absolutely. And so uh, how do you gain access to those stories of the kinds of stories that, that you had during those two years? 
it turns out that literature is a tremendous source. Hmm. You know, you, we see specials, uh, uh, in documentaries, and we read newspapers and so forth. But the, the advantage of reading literature written by people who are not uh, from the country of, uh, of origin, uh, uh, the host country, is that they offer us insights that only literature can offer because literature, like dreams, is, uh, is you know it's filled with stories. It's a place of story. You mentioned I just ri- I've just written this novel. Mm. I myself am, am not. Uh, uh, I was born in Quebec and raised in, in Canada, and have only recently become an American citizen. And now I've written this novel, uh, Hatched, about this this restaurant in New York City uh, in which the you know, this this plan is hatched, and publishing it in this country and situating the story in New York City is also a kind of form of of, of telling telling my story, telling yeah. a story. Uh, and I think the process of, of telling this story reminded me, you know, I've been teaching literature for 25 years, but the joy of being able to, to truly speak to my imagination and to give the characters free reign made it such that I could say things and think about things in this novel that I couldn't say and think about in the other books, in the other you know, non-fictional books that I've written. So Hatch becomes an adventure and it becomes a, a, a playful story and so forth. And I think that inside of it is, you know, is a lot of knowledge that I couldn't possibly convey otherwise. Mm. The great joy, is, as you know, of reading, of reading novels, of seeing films, it, it is you know, a, a kind of a form of escapism and create, you, know, you create your own world. But in regards to what we're talking about, it's also a place where you can divulge the kinds of information that courtrooms don't allow, that journalists don't allow, that our ordinary life don't allow. And, and, and I think that another interesting point in this regard is that no matter how against uh, refugees or migrants or undocumented people uh, one individual or another might be, the one exception is always that person that they know. You know, exactly. people who say, I'm so against undocumented migrants. You know, these people are just illegal and they're acting illegally and so forth. Well, except for my except for the guy who cuts my grass. I mean, you wouldn't believe his <laughs> stories. You know, he's a, and you would, oh my goodness, the flight and the risk that he took. And, the, and now he's got this wonderful home and these three terrific kids. And, you know, I mean, he may be undocumented, but let me tell you, he's, he's an he's so a true, huh? individual. Which right? is why we need it's, to get in to know the stories. I mean, and that's absolutely. why it's, it's important what these politicians are doing too, because they're telling a story. They're setting a narrative and people can believe the narrative without knowing the real stories. Absolutely. And, you know, if the narratives that they tell are narratives of hardened, hardened, uh, you know, efforts to, to deny people basic rights, so the stories they're telling are stories of, of, you know, rapists and killers and so forth, who all just happen to, to be foreigners and so forth. And if those stories are the blatant lies that they are, then... You, you also need a way to dismount them. Uh, mm. th- this is a dangerous political discourse that's being played here, and it's being played for votes. Uh, and the, what's, what's not being measured is the long-term effect. I think that anybody listening to this type of really hateful uh, rhetoric who happens to be uh, Muslim or uh, an undocumented person might feel that this is a very antagonistic place, which you know, I, I really like to think that it's not, mm. and it, and and it's 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 pandering to the to the to the really a, a very dangerous notion. Can you do both, uh, Doctor Barsky? Because it seems like some people are still going to say, "Yeah, but there, you need 
borders for safety for some at some point. And yet mm-hmm. you, what you're what you bring up, too, in your article, I think, is brilliant that policymakers can do a lot of other things to still make sure that we um, that we are helping these communities belong and create a sense of belonging and an identity. And so how do we balance kind of the safety issue and the the belonging issue? Well, again, I think that if we focus upon uh, creating the circumstances where people are going to feel safe and, and, and reassured and comfortable and so forth, then the law enforcement, which needs to track down those people who are actually engaged in dangerous activities, can focus their attention appropriately. That we do gigantic roundups of, of undocumented people from communities who have long connections to our community is is a unwieldy waste of resources. Mm-hmm. And when you get down to the details, that we spend untold billions of dollars on border enforcement, border control, and then when we catch uh, an undocumented person, and decide to throw the book at him or her, they they then uh, you know they're they're arrested, they're they're thrown in jail if they have a prior conviction for marijuana or something, they right. serve it. And then there's a deportation hearing and deportation. All of this, you know, talk about wasting taxpayers' money. All of this not only uh, is an uh, enormous burden uh, upon uh, our, our society, but it takes resources away from actual crime fighting. So we'd be so much better off uh, allowing for a free or freer movement of people across the borders, understanding that workers need to move around uh, in search of work both ways, not just people coming here, but mm-hmm. us going to other places, and then actually spend the money that we need to spend to track down people who are actually engaged in dangerous actions, that would be a yeah. much safer society. And it's then been... you would have the participation of those people who have been properly integrated, and, and they're more likely to say, hey, I saw something that I think is, is uh, uh, dangerous. I'm going to go and report it to the authority without fearing that I'm going to be demonized. I love that. And then uh, that's, to me, such a powerful way to to spend the money. Also spend the rest of the money on making sure that they can get a driver's license, so they can get a job, get access to social services, make sure that their languages, that that the the documents and paperwork are in their languages so that they don't have to hide. Ah. Dr. Uh, Robert Barsky, thank you so much. Great, great insights, I think, for all of us. Just to get that spirit of empathy back, it, it doesn't, you know, there's still safety issues, and yet it doesn't eliminate the fact that we can be good, honest, decent people and love these people that uh, were forced out of their own communities. The book is Hatched, and you can find it uh, pretty much anywhere. Go to go, just look up Robert F. Barsky and Hatched, and you can read that uh, that wonderful book about um, the integration of humans in this human world we're all living with. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Come back to a quick coach's corner. Wrap up hour number one, creating a sense of belonging. Stick with us. We'll be back. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. Hey, uh, isn't that true? You know, you got to get rid of all of these illegal immigrants coming into the country. They're just dangerous. And then all of a sudden you think of the one that you know, your neighbor, the friend, that one that cut your lawn or 
you know, your child goes to school with, eh, they're different. Yeah, they're not. I mean, you got to get rid of all the other illegal immigrants. Isn't it ironic that once you start to know the story of these people, um, it changes you. It, you empathize more. Um, we are, you know, creatures of habit. And a lot of times our fears are going to operate whether we think about them or not. We a lot of us get into what we call I call behavior scripts where we we just act out of the script. Right. We know we're supposed to be afraid of certain people. And you just naturally are afraid of those people until you learn the story and you understand the story. We uh, I went to a speech the other day where um, a church group is supporting some of these um, these immigrants that are coming from Syria, and they're they're they've had a hard life, right? They've come through a war torn war torn country, and as they arrive, all they need amazingly, is this sense of belonging, a sense of community. They, um, these, these church members are putting together buckets of beans and rice with the idea that once the bucket gets half empty, um, the, they want to be able to help these immigrants be able to fill the bucket, already have a job, already have some way to fill their own bucket with beans and rice and make them more independent. But how about you? Do you, when you sit there and think of immigration and people coming from Syria and some of those uh, Middle Eastern countries, do you immediately get, you know, scared? Do you get turned off? Do you immediately think they're here to kill everybody? Anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's all about humans, folks. We're all in this race together, and yet we create these funny divisions, and those divisions don't exist except for in our minds and our countries, of course. And our politics create the divisions as well. So make sure that you're not one that's dividing and creating divisions for division's sake. Just draw bigger circles. Let more people in. And then if we're going to let them in, we may as well help them belong or you will pay later. You'll have bigger problems. Belonging. It's just a human basic need. Nobody invented it. We all just need it. Hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show in the can. We'll be back. Stick with us. More interesting ideas to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. We'll be back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. It's crazy. Every once in a while, I think we all just need to go take a break and go. I don't know why I did it, but it just, I guess it came natural. But I went and when I was off on my vacation, I went to uh, the Reagan Museum, Presidential Museum. I also, for some odd reason, chose of all movies to watch a three and a half hour movie of Gandhi. I watched. And, well, it took like a day because <laughs> I kept being interrupted. But anyway, what I learned um, – we we've we this is your life folks this is your world this is this is up to you and um well like we just learned from dr rand we all have techniques we all have you know policies we all have paradigms that we're going to govern our govern our lives by and and you have to decide what yours is and it doesn't have to be absolute i mean it doesn't have to be 
that you are always um, charitable to the person kicking you in the teeth, but you might need to be charitable to yourself. So the principle, I think, can work. It just may not work the way you think it's going to work. Um, So be open and willing to to look deeper into your principles, into your beliefs. One of the reasons I I was um, taken aback is because to see the parallel of a Ronald Reagan who kind of knew that he deep in his heart had this belief that he was going to impact people and he wanted to impact people um, for good. And then combine that with a Gandhi who had this principle-centered way of of seeing life that no matter what, you're going to do the hard thing and you just do it. And you don't do it because it's easy. You do it because it's hard and you do it. Um, I also at the at the Ronald Reagan Museum, they they had a a, a show going on that was from the Vatican as well, and I saw a wonderful uh, painting of Mother Teresa and Pope John Paul that I thought, oh, what a beautiful setting that was, and, and this, this painting was incredible. But here's a quote that, again, goes back to Mother Teresa, um, and it's just a basic – it's a basic concept. People are often unreasonable, irrational, self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity, happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. So let's just do what's right and just do it because it's right and trust the principles to deliver the results we need. Do it anyway. It's always between you and God anyway, right? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So I do a lot of coaching of couples, and I sit down. We do what we can to help them learn to connect and stay connected once they're married. And a lot of people think it should just be easier than it than it really is. It, I mean, true love means it should just come easier, right? Well, no, not always. It's hard. And one area that I found um, a lot of people are struggling with is they want to have a hobby or they do have a hobby and they can't – they don't necessarily share it with their partner. Uh, it might be easy to love your husband's fishing when you're dating, your boyfriend, and you're loving each other and you, it's the cutest thing because he wants to go fishing and you want to fish with him because you're dating and it's exciting and – you can go out there and while you're out there fishing, you're talking and it's so fun. But that doesn't always last. Very few couples I know are sharing the hobbies that uh, that they that they could be sharing in life. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about maybe one way to find um, some time to be together is if you could find a way to, to leverage your hobbies your toys, your leisure time in a way that uh, you could actually do some fun stuff together. For example, here's some rules for you. Remember, it takes energy to make passion, right? So if your marriage is running out of passion, then you got to have energy. And apparently, as we learned this last weekend, there's a lot of people using Pokemon Go as a as a great partner building activity. My daughter, my son-in-law, 
rode their bikes with their baby in tow and went all over their town playing a silly little game together. But um, what it did is it created some energy. It created some passion. They were sharing something. I have family that play tennis every you know day, every week together and uh, as a couple, and it creates some energy. It allows them to not only go do what they both love to do, but to do it together. They can play against other teams. It creates some uh, fun teams um, activities, but also dating opportunities. So if you want some more energy or more passion in your marriage, then you got to figure out a way to invest energy together. Another thing you can do is to do what you can do together, not what you can't, um, as is obvious, right? At some point, you're going to have to give your limited energy on something. So the dilemma is one person might be a better bicyclist than the other. So honestly, I don't want to ride with you because you ride too fast or you ride too slow. And then we spend our entire time fighting about what we can't do. But maybe there are ways that we can find something that we can do together. Maybe we can't necessarily do our long ride of our bicycles together, but we can go on a bike ride, a short bike ride every every couple days. There might be something that um, you like, that I like. It might simply be that you, you may not love being outdoors and camping but maybe we rent a trailer and you stay in the trailer and we, we go camping via trailer instead of roughing it out in the out in the backwoods. Another goal or another tool that might help us to bridge our hobbies so that we can have some shared hobbies together is um, make up new things together. Make your marriage not be just what it's always been, but maybe there's something that you can do together that you've never done. So go try some new things. Maybe it's trying new restaurants every week. Maybe it's something about, uh, you know, going out um, and and trying a, a club or a dancing activity or a golf club program or a – I mean, there's so many opportunities in this crazy country we live in. There's. Are you telling me there's nothing you two can't go find that you'd both be willing to try? It also might mean you may need to leave some of the, you know, your must-nots aside. If you're somebody that says, I will never go hunting, you might want to set that aside. My rule is try everything twice, at least twice. Try it. Just try it. If it's legal, if it's ethical, if it's moral, try it. Remember, you also don't need to like it to do it. Um, There's a lot of things in our lives we don't like doing, but they're important to do. And that is just as true in our marriages. I may not love doing some of the things my wife loves to do, but I I can still like it because I'm with her. And I can go find some benefit, even just the benefit is making our marriage better. You don't have to love everything, folks, in life to make it worthwhile. Anyway, that's a few tips for you to help you uh, bridge some of your hobbies, your habits, your goals with your partner. Got to start somewhere. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So when you are sitting there and you think, I'm such a loser, such a loser, what part of you is, is saying that? Right? Is that your brain? Is that your mind? Is that your consciousness, which Dr. Alexander kept bringing up? I call it spirit. What, or is it your spirit? What, what, which, what do you call it? I personally don't believe that your spirit, that consciousness of who you are, that connection to that higher power in the world, I don't believe that that is here to tell you you're fat. Well, no, but my spirit wants me to get healthy, sure. So your spirit would prompt health, 
it wouldn't create a negative sense of self like you're fat. That's, I believe, your mind's job. Your mind is this idea of who you think you are because of what you've experienced through this life. Your mind is not who you are either. You're not just a boy or a girl. You're not just smart or mm, not so smart but super creative. Whatever your parents told you um, and everyone else reflected on you as you're growing up, to me that becomes part of your mind. And the battle becomes this battle between your mind that's trying to control your body or your spirit that's trying to control your body. Now, these are just my views, right? But I found a lot of peace knowing that I can start to recognize the difference. So when I I sit there and I get mad at somebody and I'm getting more and more mad and I think – and I have to break that person down into little parts like you're a jerk and you're petty – and you don't even have a job and blinkity blink. The minute I'm doing that, I'm not in my spirit or as Dr. Alexander would call it, you're not in your consciousness. You are – you're in your mind and your mind feels a need to battle everyone around you because there's only so many resources here, right? And your job – you need as many of them as you can to provide safety for your body. You've got to be more popular than everyone else and prettier and more powerful And if you don't, oh, what are you? You're just a loser. That's all your mind. So when I work with my clients every day, uh, if I can't get them to start to distinguish between their mind and their spirit or their mind and their consciousness, as soon as they can see the difference between the two, holy cow, it changes everything. That is what I think he's referring to when he calls it going in, go inside, going in you. And I always say just look to God. If your God came in and truly if if you believe in a God and and that God came and sat down right next to you, tell me what you'd complain about. Well, but Donald Trump, blankety, blank, blank, blank. And Ted Cruz, holy cow. Hillary, so is Hillary guilty or not? You wouldn't go to there on any of that. None of that would matter to you. What would matter? Ah, your family, your friends, your connection, who you need to serve, how you need to be better to serve with your God, hand in hand, to make things better. That's probably where we'd go. Anyway, it's just my view. little coach's corner for you. Body, mind, and spirit. Try to distinguish between your spirit and your body and your mind. We'll take a break, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, of the Matt Townsend Show. There are thousands of reasons to get angry, right? Traffic, that irksome coworker, your broken appliances, or your child's disrespect. How do you take a step back and avoid having that negative energy influence you? Here to discuss is the founder and director of the British Association of Anger Management, Mr. Mike Fisher, and he's here to tell us why parents are getting angrier and what to do about it. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. What a what an interesting job you've got. Um, you're the founder of the British Association of Anger Management, and you've been doing this for over 30 years. Uh, 20,000 people you've helped manage their emotion. Do, do you sense in all of your experience that we are getting more angry as parents? 
Well, I can, I can really only base it on our statistics based on the amount of people that email us and people who inquire over the phone and, of course, just what I experience as a general mood in the UK. So, yes, pe- uh, people, dash parents, are certainly getting more angry than usual. What do you attribute it to? Why, what, what is the cause of, of the uh, increasing parental anger? It's, it seems like anger and frustration with parenting has been there a long time, but are, are there other conditions today that might be affecting yeah, it? Absolutely. So um, I, I would say just from my own direct experience of working with children who um, are in EBD schools in the UK, emotional behavioral schools mm-hmm. um, emotional what's it EBD emotional behavioral development schools one of the big issues that we found there is a lot of these young people spend copious amounts online either playing computer games or just hanging out online on an ongoing basis anything between you know six hours a day and 10 hours a day and on school holidays probably about 18 hours a day so I think that's probably one of the major concerns for parents. What, what, and what I mean by that, of course, is that trying to get the kids to do things and cooperate is virtually impossible because they become addicted to the Internet. I, I joke about this when I say um, my, the Internet has stolen my child. Hmm. But I think there's a huge amount of truth in that. And I think bulk of our concerns and big, uh, big issues for parents is just that. And if I can just say one more thing about yeah. that, is, is that one of the things that we do say when angry parents and distraught parents give us a call, I say to them, how much time does your child or your teenager spend online a day? And then, of course, they say, you've got to be joking, not only day, night, and virtually every possible awakening hour they want to spend online. Hmm. So that kind of raises the question about, you know, one, why anger is on the increase, and secondly, why young people are so addicted to virtual reality it's um i guess it's one thing to feel angry that emotion that that you know chemical firing in your brain that you you want to go off it's another thing when we do go off right because increased anger issues would i'm assuming drive physical violence uh up well, not, not, I, I agree with you, but not only physical violence, but the angrier that I get with my kid, the more they're going to withdraw. It's not right. the other way around. There's an assumption, you know, that the angrier that we get, we think we're going to get a positive result, but that's not the way you get a positive result. And of course, that eventually could lead to physical violence. And, you know, we also have to be clear that physical violence could mean giving, you a, giving a child a spanking. Mm-hmm. And often I hear parents talk about, you know, well, I just gave him a little spank like I got on the bottom when I was a kid. Well, in this country, that's not cool at all. It's illegal. You can't do that. Yeah. So I do think there is something to be said about, you know, at what point does it actually become physical violence and what point is it exactly exactly disciplining disciplining your child however my major concern is is that screaming and shouting at your kid teenager doesn't work and parents know that especially the parents who eventually come to our anger management programs and they yeah the minute we're starting to shout scream intimidate you're you're probably going to just shut the child down right they're they're going to pull away from you which is the exact opposite of what your goal is exactly and and of course i mean the other issue there is that you know give me a moment <clears throat> historically, I used to think or believe that the reason why kids 
become uncooperative is because actually, you know, any attention, whether it's positive or negative attention, is attention. But actually, I've changed my view on that. What children, what teenagers need is connection, contact, relationship. Mm. And because their parents are so much busier and so much more stressed, they're not getting the kind of contact that they want. So where are they going? They're hanging out online. Right. And then, and then when they do get contact and connection, uh, it's it, a lot of times it's just angry, frustrated. How much exactly. of our, our anger as parents is simply because we know we're not doing a good job? Well, look, in the programs that we deliver on, uh, one of the programs we deliver on is called Understanding Anger for Parents. So one of the things that we say is, you know, who makes you angry as a parent? And, you know, people say the children or the traffic or whatever. Um, and we say, no, you make you angry. You have a choice whether you're going to be angry or not. Hmm. But essentially what makes a parent angry is not their children because they feel emotionally inadequate to get the kind of cooperation they actually need to get a child to do whatever tasks they need to do. Get up in the morning, brush their teeth, put their clothes on, get to school on time. So they feel profoundly inadequate, inadequate, and then what they do is they then project that onto the kids. Right. And the other problem, of course, as you can imagine from my perspective, is it's not about being angry with the kid. It's about being angry with the behavior of the child. Mm-hmm. And I keep forgetting that there's a distinction between the two. And it seems like we've uh, these kids are getting more complicated in a way and emotionally. And we, we, I guess, are more and more under-tooled, which is all the more reason we need a program to help us with this anger management. Absolutely, but let me let me tell you something really interesting is that when we have tried to promote anger management for parents, we've not got the kind of response that we've needed. Uh, the bulk of the programs that we've delivered on in the UK has been through a visionary, um, what do we call them? We call them a commissionaire through Ealing Council, which is one of the boroughs in the UK and one of the boroughs in London. And she had the vision about 13 years ago to employ me to come in and do these anger management programs. And I was doing until recently four of these programs a year, and they were chock-a-block. We couldn't take more than 22 people mm-hmm. per program. And I've been doing that for the last 13 years. I mean, it's only recently wow. where they've run out of funding. But to get people to admit, sorry, let me take it back, to get parents to admit that they have anger management issues, they judge themselves for being failures. And mm. of course, being, the, being a, a parent is one of the most difficult tasks on the planet. I mean, that's just a given as far as I'm concerned. Right. Well, and th- I guess that's it. So you changed the name of it. What was it? Understanding? <laughs> yeah, we used to call it Anger Management for Parents, and then we changed the name to Understanding Anger Management mm. for Parents. <laughs> so then parents would come in, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> and... Um, you know, they, they feel a little less guilty or ashamed. But, you know, while they're there, they recognize that actually they're as angry as their chil- ch- children or their child. However, what we always say, and for your listeners, this is an important key. The child, the teenagers, the young adult will always, always act out the unconscious of the parents. Hmm. So when parents call us, we first try and identify their anger issues and whether they're angry or not. And so that is a kind of a key component to the whole issue. And as soon as we realize that there's a, there's a problem with the actual parents themselves, that is where our focus is. So give me we an example of that. So if, if I'm stressed as a parent about finances, about the economy, um, 
and I, you know, and it, it has me working longer hours. It has me doing all of these no. things. Is that my? You're saying my child is very likely to act out that financial emotional stress. What I'm what I'm suggesting is that when I start to get into an argument and a fight with you as my partner, as my wife, my husband, and the kids observe that, that creates a huge amount of distress in them. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they will act that out unconsciously, and we will act that out unconsciously. Yeah. In fact, sorry, let me take that back. We'll act it out unconsciously with each other. They will act it out consciously, uh-huh. which increases my stress level your stress level, and of course their stress levels, and stress fuels anger. So in, the, in, the, in our inability to understand and manage our emotions better, we are creating an emotional chaotic environment, emotionally chaotic environment. The, 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 there is that, but I just want to, yes, I agree, and there is that, but just let's go back a step. So what happens is we get parents calling us and saying, I have a child who has a problem with anger. I know the problem is with the child. I know the problem is with the parents. Right. So they don't call up and say, actually, I have an anger management problem, and it's affecting and impacting my kid. There's shame associated with that. So right. How am I going to own up to that? So let's make it about the kid. So the way that we operate, certainly now my one-to-one work, is, is I say, well, first of all, we start with you and your husband or you and your wife. Let's kind of get a sense of what's going on for you. I do six sessions with them. I literally get them on the same page as me. And actually what paradoxically happens is their relationship starts to stabilize. Guess what happens with the kids? Bingo. Healed. Their relationships start to stabilize. Yeah. It's so interesting. From six, it's very interesting, isn't it? So I go from sometimes six sessions, sometimes 12 sessions, sometimes 18 sessions. And actually I don't even need to see the kids. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that great? And uh, I mean, again, really heal thyself, right? Uh, as they start to get better uh, emotional understanding and management of their own emotion, they probably communicate better. They can solve problems better. They can get on the same page together. And then the child just heals by watching healthy behavior. Yeah, it's pure, it is simply energetic and... And I think there's another component to it is because when the child sees stability in the family system, they're less stressed. And when they're less stressed, there's more contact. And with more contact, they're more emotionally stable. Hmm. Now, I'm slightly exaggerating that, yeah, because, of course, you get kids that are angry, and it doesn't come from the family system. Right. It might come from bullying in school. It might come from uh, relatives. It might come from older siblings, younger siblings. We, we, I don't think it's, there's any hard and fast rule. So we actually also have to look at the, not just the system within the family, but we've got to go out into the community. And then, of course, we also have to look at the junk that they eat. Oh, yeah. Food's a whole other story here. Let's continue the discussion after the break. We're speaking with Mike Fisher uh, at angermanage.co.uk, a great organization in the UK working with parents that are struggling with uh, anger management issues and how to um, how to how to control your own emotion a little bit better. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, hopefully give you more tools to manage the emotion. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. 
Have your kids uh, been stressing you out? Are you wondered? Are you wondering why they? Oh, why are they just so bored with life? And why does that make you so angry that they're on their phone and then they don't do their homework and then ah, then you blow it? Joining us on the phone is Mike Fisher, and Mike for the last thirty years has been working with people on managing emotion, on human potential, on personal growth. He has a website, angermanage.co.uk, angermanage.co.uk. He's a wonderful resource in the UK to help parents understand their own emotional management. And uh, he joins us today to walk us through um, an article he wrote, Why Parents Are Getting Angrier. And Mike, we appreciate you being with us. It's a pleasure. Can I just say one thing? Please. For those American parents, I also do Skype workshops, or, sorry, Skype um, assessments uh-huh. and sessions internationally. So I do work across the planet. Great. So we can actually call you, have a, have a, a little um, like a, a, a consultation with you and find out yeah. how to manage it. But you just brought up a great point that the first thing you try to do when you're working with this, even though the parents might present this as my kids have got issues – um, you usually have found it works better if we get the parents first to work on their own anger, I guess, as an individual and as a couple. Yes. I mean, keeping in mind, I mean, that's from just years and years of being in this business. I've been in the business for over 18 years now. And so we've kind of worked that we've worked out a formula. One is we need the parents on the same page as us. Right. Two, we need as much cooperation from the parents as we do from the children. And, of course, if I'm working with a child or a teenager without working with the parents, once I've done amazing work with a child or teenager, you know, they go home um, to, their, to their parental home, and then the parents say something which is completely inappropriate, and they just lash out. So parents also need to find a language, a way of communicating to kind of get um, the, the response as opposed to the reaction that they need. Hmm. And you, I guess, I mean, you've written two books. Beating Anger was one of them in 05 yeah. and one in 2012, uh, Mindfulness and the Art of Managing Anger. I mean, we the anger is inside of us, right? And it, it comes from, I guess, some of it's conscious, some of it's, some of it's probably, I guess, uh, subconscious, conscious thoughts. Sure. And then, yep. but so what are some of the tricks of the trade that you teach for us to get control of our emotion? So, so we, you know, one of the areas that we focus on in terms of, tri- I like the idea of tricks, for, tricks of the trade, um, we, we talk about six rules of anger management. Some of those rules are directly related to parenting and parenting school skills, and other rules uh, are irrelevant. However, if you want me talk, to talk about that, that's something I'd, I'd like to talk about. Yeah, that, that'd be great. Okay. So, you know, from, from the top, I think one of the big issues with parents I hope the parents are listening to this, by the way. Mm-hmm. One of the big issues uh, with parents is they take things personally. Yeah. They take it very personally if their children do not cooperate or behave in the way that they want them to. And that's the worst thing that you can do because it's not personal. The, the, the thing about a child, if a child or teenager wants to cooperate, guess what? They'll do that. Right. But they also know their parents' hot buttons. They know exactly how to trigger their parents. And so, of course, when they realize that their parents are reacting in the way that they do, it gives them more power. It gives them more influence over their parents. So firstly, it's about how not to take things personally. Now, of course, that's part and parcel of our programs. That's what we deliver. And it's not just a, you know, 30-second conversation with you. But that's one of the the rules that we work with. 
The second thing we look at is stop, think, take a look at the big picture. You know, a parent needs to be a hell of a lot more objective in the context of what is actually going on. And, and of course, that feeds into not taking things personally. However, we need to take into consideration that a child might be very stressed, a child might be very depressed, a child might be very overwhelmed, a child might be very confused. Now, a child might not have the language, the emotional intelligence, the EQ versus the IQ to be able to communicate and express that. So as parents, we need to start to investigate that. We need to ask a lot more questions rather, about sh- rather than shaming and blaming. Right. And the, po- the reason why I shame and blame is because I'm taking the child's behavior personally. I'm making it about me and it's got nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. Am, yeah. I, am I making sense? Yeah, totally. And then they can't see the big picture, and then they just turn into a reactive ball of energy. Exactly. Yeah. And then it justifies, unfortunately, it justifies the child's behavior. Right, right. It, it reinforces the child's behavior. You don't, actually, that's a, that's a big one, because one of the major issues that we have with parents, you know, the feedback we get from children and teenagers, my parents don't listen to me. Mm. And that's another one of the rules. Parents need to listen, not just hear. But listen, and I think there's a distinction between the two. And, and that's a skill I've noticed we, just as adults, we're not very good at. We don't, we listen really more to respond than we do to understand. Yes, exactly. So parents so need to get better at listening. Absolutely. So we've got stop, think, take a look at the big picture. It's okay to have a, a don't take anything personally. Uh, listen, the other major a resource is using your support network. So, you know, it's fascinating with the parents that we work with. They live and they work in isolation. Most of them are stressed out and exhausted, and mm. they don't really have the kinds of community that they need in order to get the necessary support so that they can take a break, they can take time out. And so there's something amazing when they're sitting in a group of, say, 22 people, and there's an amazing amount of wisdom there, and it's a resource yeah. in the community. And they start to realize that they can actually start using each other for support, so they connect, mm. and they develop these relationships to offer wisdom, uh, words of advice, um, maybe even become really good friends, whereby they can actually support um, families as and when they need it. So, you know, I, I might need to, I want to, myself and my wife might want to go out for the evening. I know I can possibly call somebody in my support network mm. to do a bit of babysitting yeah. or, you know, get together as families and friends. No, I love that. We, in fact, um, I, I noticed my parents divorced when I was younger, but it was our support network. It was our church family, our our neighbors, friends that would that would kind of fill that void and and help yes. my single mom out, and yes. it was really ended up being those people, a lot of them, that influenced me so greatly. Yes, it's powerful. So, exactly, and so support is absolutely fundamental. And then the other rule that we 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 introduce is um, parents using an anger management journal. So what, what I what I mean by that is that you know if you allow yourself to just to ruminate whereby letting the anger go round and round and round in your head eventually drives you nuts. Right. I mean, there's an American saying, as you probably know, you know, don't let anger rent space in your head. <laughs> and so that's often what happens. So, we, you know, we become consumed by negative thoughts as opposed to positive thoughts. And so by using an anger journal, it is just another very effective way of um, 
managing those emotions and those feelings by not ruminating, by not allowing them to rent space in your head. And then, of course, you know, while I'm looking at what uh, what a monster my kid is, maybe I can also take time to think about what are the positive aspects of them? Yeah. You know, where do they shine? Where are they cooperative? Where are they amazing and creative and loving and kind? But the problem is the point that I demonize my kids. I forget that my capacity to be empathetic and competition, uh, compassionate, in fact, I become competitive, of course, yeah. to, to, be, to be empathy and compassionate kind of just diminishes and goes out the window and I demonize my kids. Hmm. In that moment, of course, yeah, in that moment. And you do this in six sessions, um, and it pretty much gets the parents on the same page with you, and then I guess they can practice them over each week and and gain a deeper appreciation. I guess what you're really doing is almost turning the emotion off, right, by creating a better interpretation, a healthier interpretation, and giving them some yeah. skills, some tools to manage the emotion. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we're doing. It's very accurate the description of it. And then, do the then kids? Course, do you teach the children the same thing? Okay, so if we're doing our workshops with groups of people, you know, they're only there for a very intense day. Yeah, they do get support from the actual local council because they do have uh, caseworkers and key workers and social workers who then go on to help those parents integrate their learning. <clears throat> In the one-to-one work. You know, I probably do an average, um, let me just be very clear, so it's 6, 12, probably of average between 12 and 18 sessions. But by the time we get to the 12th session where I'm interviewing the kid or doing an assessment for the kid, the kid's in a very different space mm-hmm. simply because his parents are stabilized. So in recent years, I can tell you now, I hardly ever work with uh, teenagers and kids. Mm. I tend to just focus on the parents. Yeah. And something stabilizes. However, I also suggest books that they can read. Yeah. So they can because, continue you know, their they, learning. Uh, yes. And, and they can go deep know, as deep as they want to go. Absolutely. Because, you know, sometimes what happens, I'm not a, a child behaviorist. A child behaviorist is the kind of bloke or woman that can help you to get your kids out of bed in the morning, get them dressed, get them to school. That's very much about child behavioral management. That's not my gig. I'm, I'm a therapist. I'm teaching people how to manage their anger. But the kind of questions they then ask me, you know, how do I get him to bathe? How do I get him off the computer? And there are people like Chespahu, um, who's, who's, I think, is a Swedish bloke who really, really knows his stuff. And there are people like Charles Taylor in the UK and Warwick Dyer in the UK. These guys will tell you how to get your kids to cooperate, not manage their anger. Get them to cooperate. Hmm. And so mm. I guess that when, we, when I think of all of this, man, there's so much that we need to learn as a parent. And I guess the first big learning is don't pass it all. Don't pass all your power off to your kid. Don't make Absolutely. them be the blame. Don't make them be the answer. Yes. I mean, really what, what I often say to parents is that you know, every time you act out in anger, you give your power away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's for, for us – we're not saying get rid of your anger. We're not saying deny your anger. We're saying find a way to communicate and language your thoughts and feelings. And so you start by expressing yourself by saying, I feel angry with you. Or I say, you know, I, very, I feel very sad and hurt, scared and angry because I'm actually struggling to get you to cooperate. And at this point, we need to find a new way of getting you to cooperate. So let's have the discussion. Let's explore this in, in more detail. So, you know, you begin a communication 
Mm-hmm. And, they, and it also, what also happens in, in many cases, depending on the age, of course, is uh, it creates reciprocity. It becomes a dance between you and I. But kids want to be understood. They want to be valued. They want to be respected, just like parents do. Right, right. So, you know, often parents focus on the symptoms. They don't focus on the causes. And the causes primarily is that children, teenagers, want to be loved unconditionally. And if they don't get that, it's definitely uh, an obstacle that actually creates suffering and pain. Yeah. Well, I I couldn't agree more. And we got to get out of all that smoke and get down to the real fire, the real issue that that just desire to be connected to somebody. As we wrap it up, uh, Mike, what would you say? I always ask for the one thing. What's the one thing? And maybe you just answered it that would that would immediately create the biggest impact in the parent child relationship when it comes to emotion. Well, there's not just one thing, but I I think the closest I could get to that is that what I have to realize is that the reason I'm I'm angry with the child is because I'm actually inadequate in being able to get them to cooperate. Hmm. And it's not about feeling, it's not about inadequacy. It's a really difficult job. And there's no need to be ashamed about it, but it's about getting educated. Love it. Love it. Mike Fisher, appreciate your great insight. Again, the, go, go look up the books Beating Anger and uh, Mindfulness and the Art of Managing Anger. You can also get more information on his website, angermanage.co.uk, and get information about how you can work with him over Skype. Interesting stuff, folks. It's about uh, our own insecurities, our own inadequacies, and let's just get more educated. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion. Leanna Tan, one of our producers, will be talking about tongue twisters in the English language. Stick with us. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back. You know, um, emotion, it's telling you something. It's, it's communicating to you. So if you're angry, if you're frustrated, if you feel this shame that uh, Mike Fisher was talking about as a parent, we want to project it onto somebody else. We want to make it sound like and seem like our problem would be our children or, you know, our work environment or this crazy world. But in the end, your emotion is yours. It's coming from your thinking, your way of uh, approaching this issue, and you you really can't argue with just getting more information, more learning, more skills to help you uh, with it. If you notice you have an anger management problem, there could be other things going on as well. You might be super reactive. You might also be one person that has a lot of um, a, a lot of sensitivity, which means you probably pick up a lot of data, and you might get exhausted and frustrated more, which comes out with more angry emotional outbursts. So watch out for that. In fact, a really uh, great search, go Google the Matt Townsend Show and Highly Sensitive Person. Those, those two keywords, Matt Townsend Show and Highly Sensitive Person. You'll have a great interview that we did um, with Elaine Aaron uh, talking about uh, highly sensitive people. And a lot of the people that I think are blowing up are very sensitive. And they're the ones that tend to ruminate. And they just can't get their head out of that thought that I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad parent. My kid's sitting there. He's not doing his homework. I'm a bad parent. And we just keep spiraling. So just some simple tools for you. But I guess the number one, recognize your anger is about you, right? It's probably about your feeling uh, that you're not cutting it. You're not – you don't know how to deal with this situation as a parent. And so instead of blowing up, maybe uh, 
blow open a book and go read, go learn, go take a break. Now, back to uh, another point at hand. You know, one of the hardest things about learning a language can be the pronunciation of words. Even if you have spoken the language your entire life, it's easy to stumble over your own words. So you might think you've mastered the English language, but really there's so many tongue twisters you can't quite get right. Uh, feel, f- uh, feel and fill are words I'm working on. Um, it, it doesn't seem like it should be that hard, but man, some of the language just gets you. So joining us um, through a little five-minute uh, story is going to be our producer, Leanna Tan, and she's going to show us a few tongue twisters that have her stumped. When I was little, I used to pride myself on being the fastest one at saying, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Okay, Eunice Travel Plans, I need to be in New York on Monday, LA on Tuesday, New York on Wednesday, LA on Thursday, New York on Friday, got it? It was like people thought you were some kind of whiz kid for like two seconds. If you could master the tongue twister. It's been a while, but... I wonder if I've still got it. I'm a little rusty at my tongue twister practicing, but I have had a lot of enunciation practice working at this radio. Good morning, Vietnam! So I started wondering, has all my radio voicing and enunciation practice paid off? There was really only one way to find out. So I have here a master of language. Connoisseur of linguistic talents. Yes, that's her title. (laughs) And this is my very own sister, Asia. So Asia is brilliant. She was valedictorian and beat me at a lot of things growing up. But we're going to see if if I can beat her at something today. So today we're going to have her do some tongue twisters. But she has one already memorized that I want her to debut. What is the tongue twister that you have memorized? It's from Fox and Socks by Dr. Seuss, and it's just a little part of that one. All right, let's hear it. When Tweedle Widow's battle is called a Tweedle Widow battle, and the battle on a puddle is a Tweedle Widow puddle battle, and Tweedle Widow's battle paddles on a puddle like a this Tweedle Widow puddle paddle battle, and Widow's battle beetles on a puddle paddle battle, and the beetle battle puddle is a puddle in a bottle like a this Tweedle Widow puddle puddle battle battle battle. When Beetle fights battles on a bottle with their paddles on bottles on Poodle and the Poodle's eating noodles like a this Tweedle Poodle beetle noodle bottle paddle battle, and when a fox is in a bottle with his Tweedle Widow's battle with their paddles on a puddle on a Noodle eating Poodle like a this Tweedle Widow noodle puddle battle paddle battle battle fettled little fox and soxer. We just got served, team. Holy cow, that was so amazing. Thanks. I'm glad I could impress you. All right, well, let's see if I can beat her. <laughs> All right, I have like three tongue twisters that are going to stump you because I've already read these out loud and they're hard. <laughs> okay. So there's one part of English language that's that's kind of unique to other languages and it's our R sound. It's very harsh than Arg. other, other um, languages and we have to like train our tongues. So this one kind of tests our ability. Number one, it's a simple sentence, but it's kind of really hard to say. Willie's real rear wheel. Bonjour! Your cheese eating surrender monkeys! Ooh. Willie's real rear wheel. Willie's rear. Where are you, Mr. Dang it! Willie's real, real. No, real rear wheel. Willie's real rear wheel. <laughs> Willie's real rear wheel. Willie's real rear wheel. Said Willie's real. Keep it real. All right, let's try another one. Su- Susie Seward's fish sauce shop sells unsifted thistles for thistle sifters to sift. What? That doesn't make sense. And if something doesn't make sense, it's not true. Susie Seward's fish sauce shop fish fish sauce shop sells unsifted thistles for thistle sifters to sift. Mm. All right, let's jump to another one. This is actually a name. Poor lady. I'm Jill. What's your name? Uh. Peggy Babcock. <laughs> Peggy Babcock, and you have to say it fast three times. Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock, <laughs> Peggy Babcock. Oh, it is hard. 
Peggy Babcock. 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 Oh, poor lady. So if you're ever wondering what to name your children and if your last name's Babcock, say it out loud three times first. All right, I think I can finally stump you. (laughs) This is what I learned in Japanese class. Oh. It's a Japanese. No fair. This means Tokyo Patent Agency. Oh, man. So it's Tokyo, Tokyo, Kyoka, Kyoku. I don't speak Japanese. I wrote it in English. Okay, fine. Tokyo, Tokyo, Kyoka, Kyoku. Tokyo, Tokyo, Kyoka, Kyoku. Tokyo, Kyo. No. I think I beat her. Ah. I speak Japanese. I got you on the English one. Say Dang unique it. New York five times fast. Unique New York, unique New York, unique New York, unique New York, unique New York. Fine. Unique New York. Yeah! <laughs> I won! Well, now that the sister is beaten, I think she owes me doing my laundry. I'll do your laundry today. Yes! Ah. <sighs> Man, that felt good. Years of hard work and tongue drills finally paid off. So if you were ever wondering what an instant way to increase your cool points was, just memorize one of those tongue twisters. I'm a thistle sifter. I have a sieve of sifted thistles and a sieve of unsifted thistles because I'm a thistle sifter. Well, I hope you all have a happy, harmonious, hearty, humorous day. And if you take nothing else away from listening to this, at least now you know not to name your child Peggy Babcock. <laughs> what kind of stupid name is that? I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. <laughs>